Welcome to Literary Disco, Episode 1, Bright's Passage. My name is Ryder Strong. On today's show, we're going to do two segments. First, we're going to do a bookshelf revisit. That means Todd, Julia, and I are each going to pick a book from our bookshelf and talk about it, for better or worse. And then uh, we'll get into Bright's Passage, the debut novel by Josh Ritter. Stay with us. Hey everybody, welcome back to Literary Disco with Todd Goldberg, Julia Pastel, and Ryder Strong. Uh, we're going to do a bookshelf revisit. So, have you guys uh, found something to revisit from your bookshelf? I have. I also have. Uh, what have you got for us, Julia? Um, I have a book. I feel like I'm on Reading Rainbow right now. <laughs> you do look a little bit like LeVar Burton. Take a look. Um, it is In Pharaoh's Army by Tobias Wolfe. Um, I genuinely revisited this on my bookshelf today because um, I was trying to do some editing and of some nonfiction essays. And uh, a lot of people know Tobias Wolf from This Boy's Life and his great fiction. Um, he also wrote a book called Old School, which is really good. Uh, novel, but loved the movie. Loved the movie, Old School. I thought Will Ferrell was amazing in that. Vince Vaughn was so powerful. Unrelated. In that. Oh, sorry, no. I thought... Classic misunderstanding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is a book called In Pharaoh's Army, as I already said a bunch of times before you jerks interrupted me. Um, and it's about it's actually nonfiction essays about Tobias Wolf's. Uh, um, he served in Vietnam, and he reluctantly went and. He just writes eloquently about the ambivalence of being at war, so it's really good. Wow, how have I never heard of this book? Yeah, I can't believe have I've never really? heard of it either. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, I've heard the title. I'm, I'm Obviously, I know Tobias Wolff, and I, I, I've heard the title, but I had no idea it was nonfiction and that he went to Vietnam. That's awesome. I, mean, I, I know, Todd, you and I are both, like, total Vietnam literary mm-hmm. geeks, so um, I'm yeah, so Yeah, I can't believe I haven't read it either yeah. for that very same purpose, because I, I absolutely... I don't know what it is. Vietnam fiction and Vietnam nonfiction yeah. is like my go-to. Oh, I have nothing to read. Oh, I'm going to read about you know guys shooting people in Da Nang. I'm exactly the same way. <laughs> uh, but that's great. I mean, I I really want to check that out because I've I to be honest, I've only read his short stories. Um, like he was one of my favorite short story writers when like from when I was a teenager. Yeah, and what's really great about the book too is that the essays really read like short stories. They're constructed like short stories. He's not telling one long piece it's they're all short pieces about his ambivalence toward the war and towards his place in it so um but i can't believe i've not read this book and i can't believe i've not lied and said that i have read this book when presented with it in the past I, can i just read a little part of it for you sure. all right so sure. there's one called close calls i'm running a i run a reading series in hartford where i live and the theme is luck so i also went back to this to pick out a piece about luck in some way so this is a piece about various ways, various close calls that he had during his time there. So um, so he, he switches places with a guy, and the guy gets killed in place of him, and he's talking about how, what an emotional toll that took on him. So he says, in a world where the most consequential things happen by chance or for unfathomable causes, you don't look to reason for help. You consort with mysteries. You encourage yourself with charms, omens, rites of proprietation. Without your knowledge or permission, the bottom line caveman belief in blood sacrifice, one life buying another, begins to steal into your bones. How could it not? All around you people are killed. Soldiers on both sides, farmers, teachers, mothers, fathers, schoolgirls, nurses, your friends, but not you. They have been killed instead of you. 
this observation is unavoidable. So in time is the corollary, the implicit in the word instead, in place of. They have been killed in place of you, in your place. You don't think it out, not at the time, not in those terms, but you can't help but feel it and go on feeling it. It's the close call you have to keep escaping from, the unending doubt that you have a right to your own life. It's the corruption suffered by everyone who lives on that henceforth they must wonder at the reason and probe its justice. Wow. 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 This book rules. It's really good. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Todd, what do you have uh, as your bookshelf revisit? Well, weirdly enough, um, and by the time uh, this episode airs, it will seem even weird, uh, weirder rather, is that I'd never read The Hunger Games. Um, so I've, I've wow. been reading it for the last uh, couple days. I started reading it. And because I know that Jennifer Lawrence is the star of The Hunger Games, I cannot get the book and the movie Winter's Bone out of my head. Totally. And I've been thinking so much about Winter's Bone and about how Daniel Woodrell wrote this book. But how also it's a really familiar story. You know, basically a young girl has to go and save the family farm mm-hmm. um, in some form or fashion. It's the same story as True Grit. And it's the same story as, you know, a lot of the Hunger Games, you know, about she has to go fight to save her humanity and fight to save the family's life. And uh, so I've been, I've been obsessed with this idea of the female hero who goes on this violent quest to save everything and how winter's bone is i think the best version of that in the last very long time and i'm a i'm an unapologetic and possibly stalkerish daniel woodrell fan and by stalkerish i mean i can see him now i see Mm. him from where i'm sitting in his underwear in his underwear he looks lovely um so i've been thinking a lot about that book have you guys read winter's bone or uh, i haven't read any of his stuff actually Oh, I read it and I saw the movie and one of the things I read about it that I that was so very nail on the head to me and so close what you're saying Todd is um that it's almost a really dark fairy tale Mm -hmm. I mean I don't want to give anything away but she goes into dangerous places she's put through various trials she meets witches and she has to come back with a grotesque talisman Mm -hmm. of some kind that is really I mean it's just so potent and mystical in a way it's it's a really good book well and Woodrow always infuses his books with a, a sort of ozarkian mysticism he's able to pull it off i think because he he gives these run-of-the-mill well maybe not run-of-the-mill he gives these these ozark people who are dangerous and scary to us who live in our gated communities and whatnot sort of a mythical quality you know they're, they're clans they're not people and so I, I think that's how he pulls it off. And I keep thinking about that as I've been reading along with The Hunger Games, which, by the way, I'm loving inordinately, uh, and, and wondering how you pull that off. Because it's not something I can do. I know in my own writing it's, it's not something that I've needed to do, but that I could even figure out how to make it seem believable. And, and Woodrell is able to pull that off. But I also love that he is a 50-something man writing about a 16-year-old girl in the Ozarks, and he inhabits her skin. He gets into every pore of her being, and I just absolutely love and admire that. Yeah, great. What about you, Ryder? What are you thinking about? Well, I'm in an interesting. Uh, physically, I'm in a, a, a different place. I'm up at my parents' house uh, when we're recording this right now. So I thought I would revisit my actual bookshelf that's still in my childhood room because it's this weird section of books that I've that I didn't take with me uh, when I moved out. So there were these books that, for whatever reason, I decided I 
never was going to read again or <laughs> and, or didn't have to read again. And so I have like a like a lot of like, uh, you know, old high school textbooks. And then I have like uh, D&D books and then I have Stephen <laughs> King books. And, but then I also realized and I, I totally forgotten this. I have almost every Michael Crichton book ever written. And I realized, really? like, oh, my God, I went through an obsessive Michael Crichton phase. And, oh, God. And yet I've completely forgotten him as a writer. I have no, like, connection to him. And so I just sort of wanted to take a moment to appreciate <laughs> Michael Crichton and that he obviously had a big influence on me when I was 12 or 13 or whatever. And, I, I mean, I remember reading Jurassic Park. That was obviously my first one was before the movie came out and just loving the book. But I'm looking here at, at Congo, Terminal Man, The Andromeda Strain, Rising Sun. And, you know, I mean, I think that he kind of has a poor reputation because near the end of his life, or a reputation in my, own, in my mind at least, because he became like <laughs> an anti-global warming uh, right. advocate, and which is kind of crazy. But up until then, he was such a great proponent of science and that he, mm. always, he always used science as a launching point. And I think, you know, as a geeky... 13 year old I totally responded to the sort of wonder and excitement about science that he was able to bring and make a story out of into you know bring into his books and make a great exciting stories out of I have no idea if he's actually a good writer I kind of want to reread one of these I would suggest not rereading Congo. <laughs> not, don't make it Congo. Well, the one that I was just flipping through is Rising Sun, and I was like, "What is this book all about?" Like, it's like this really pretty racist thing about like, you know, the crazy Japanese coming and taking all of our jobs. Which I was like, "That's right." There was this moment in American history where we were like really concerned about the Japanese taking our job, and I mean, we still are in some ways. But like, I remember there was this, all this, uh, you know, anxiety because the Japanese were doing so well economically, and it was like, "But they do business differently than us," and like, that's what this book is about. And like, and then they made that horrible movie adaptation. Do you remember this? It's just yes. no. like it's not like I. I'm sure that there are plenty of things that I would have issues with in these books now, but um, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting to see these books that I've obviously jettisoned into adulthood, but that since I'm here, that would I, be worth it. I see a future episode where we read a Michael Crichton book. Okay. I, uh, I feel pretty sure that it's going to be Sphere. I am in. I will read that. Oh, my God. But that's a good point about science because, you know, American interest in science is like really strong until kids are 13 or 14 and then it just completely drops off for some reason. Maybe it's because they're not reading enough Michael Crichton and getting jazzed up about it. I'm uh, I'm looking at all of Michael Crichton's books right now uh, on on my internet machine and The Andromeda Strain, I remember reading that one too. It came out in 1969. What? The, the, yeah. He oh, wow. until he died, he? he published he like a book a year for 40 oh. years. He's dead. Whoops. Yeah, he, he just he, died like two years ago. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. So now he knows whether or not uh, global warming is a myth. I suspect. <laughs> they tell you that. They tell you that. Is that the first thing? Peter? Yeah. To have it's who killed Kennedy and why is it so fucking hot? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and on that note, we're going to end our bookshelf revisit for this week. Join us next time. <laughs> Golden ratio the shell. Stairs ascending round themselves The trees rustle as if to kneel and listen The heartbeat of a lark or a lark in my heartbeat The oxygen and priestly green 
Hi, everybody, and welcome again to Literary Disco. I'm Todd Goldberg here with Julie Pistel and Ryder Strong. And we're going to talk about... Hey, hi. <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, our first book here, and it's... Uh, it's a it's a interesting one. It's Bright's Passage by Josh Ritter, uh, the singer songwriter. Um, if you're not familiar with Josh Ritter, he has released um, I think four albums: um, Hello Starling, Golden Age of Radio, uh, Animal Years, um, and So the Run- So Runs the World Away, which uh, which came out uh, not too long ago as well. Yeah, and then he's put out a couple of live albums too. I'm like a huge fan, so. I own everything, and he's a he is I think really one of the the best singer songwriters out there. I I listen to him a lot when I'm writing, um, which I I think is the the perfect uh, example of why he is good for this talk because I think he inspires writers. You know, I I know a lot of people like him a lot for uh, the the kinds of songs that he sings, and I you know I would say. Vaguely, he writes story songs, but not in the uh, Harry Chapin, I was driving a taxi <laughs> and I picked you up and we used to sleep together type songs. But songs with a really strong narrative. Wouldn't you guys agree with that? I've actually never heard him before. I've heard other people talk about him, but I'm not coming into this read as a fan or with any sense of what his music sounds like. Um, for me, the the sort of a, the crowning achievement of his career was Animal Years, mm-hmm. which is such a great album, but it's actually kind of anti-narrative it doesn't make it's more sort of just image based right it's like really great imagery and i mean he just he has such a way with words um and he's incredibly eloquent in his songs but it's only the last album i think that got really sort of story but literally like he has that one song that's about a mummy coming back to life i mean there's full arcs you know characters shooting each other and dying Mm. and their angels interacting with each other you know he does a lot so i feel like he's gotten more story based which is not surprising that you know probably as he was gearing up for this novel well um, in fact what i've what i've read is that Bright's passage came to him while he was writing his last album. Um, that the idea for it came from there. And you know, I think what what writer what you're saying is true. That there's been an evolution. My favorite song of his of all time is a song called uh, Lawrence, Kansas, um, which is a song ostensibly about you know sadness and and Lawrence, Kansas. What could be happy about Lawrence, Kansas? Um, but in his novel, um, you know, it's completely different than what you might imagine from the kind of guy who's a singer-songwriter in the 21st century. I I think he's written ostensibly a very classic kind of novel. Um, It it takes place during um, the early 1900s at the onset of World... or just after World War I. Um, It has some some postmodern things, which we'll talk about a little bit. Um, But, you know, Ritter comes from a a long line of singers... um, who have tried their hands at, at books. I think you know, one of the most famous ones would be Leonard Cohen, um, whose book The Beautiful Losers uh, was sort of a, a beat novel that came out in the 1960s. Uh, it's, it's frankly difficult to read. Um, it's still Leonard Cohen. Um, you, you, you're still aware that it's Leonard Cohen, but it's, uh, you, know, you can't take it to the pool or anything. Um, and then just recently, there was a book that came out called Amplified, uh, that Melville House put out in uh, 2009 that was a collection of short stories by just a huge slew of singer-songwriters like Maria McKee, who used to be in Lone Justice, 
um, Mary Gautier, I think her, is how you pronounce her last name, or maybe it's Gothier. Uh, Rhett Miller, who's in the old 97s. Um, Zach Sally. So there's, there was a ton of short stories uh, in this book, and it was frankly um, awful, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you. It was, it, it was a terrible book. Um, yeah. Well, in a way, I think that, you know, no matter how great of a songwriter you are, it just doesn't necessarily translate. I mean, that's to me, it's I would have a much easier time believing somebody could make a transition from being a lyricist to a poet. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and even that, for me, I don't really believe because I think poetry is so different from song lyrics. Um, I think bad poetry is usually good song lyrics and vice versa. And um, I, I, I just wouldn't. I, you know, I, I was actually surprised how well written this book was. I, I was surprised that it, that it was, you know, a full narrative that I got completely through, and it wasn't too indulgent, which is kind of what I expected, to be honest, because I assumed if somebody was that. Uh, sort of word focused in their songwriting um, which doesn't necessarily need to be word focused that they would just obsess over you know their own prose and be sort of ornate and uh, it wasn't it, I mean it was just actually pretty refreshing uh, prose wise it's um, pretty spare I and poetic I yep. think in places too um, let me just give a just a brief you know thumbnail synopsis of the book and then then we can talk about it a, a bit more um, directly. So essentially, Bright's passage is about a man named Henry Bright um, who returns from World War One um, after having I guess what you would call a uh, heavenly um, insurrection while in battle. Divine um, intervention. He, divine intervention. He <laughs> believes that uh, an angel is now speaking to him after he narrowly escapes death on, on several different occasions. Um, I'm oversimplifying it, but that's basically it. Uh, he comes back home um, to West Virginia where he has a, a wife, and uh, that wife soon dies, and leaving him with his child, uh, just a very small baby. And uh, this angel that is with him tells him he must burn down his house and escape the woods of West Virginia and and find... The angel that is in the form of a horse. The angel that is in the form of a horse and occasionally other things as well. Um, he, that he must go find you know a, a purpose for his child, his child who is the chosen one, uh, apparently. Not in the Neo from the Matrix sense, but... In more of a eventually put on a cross type sense. Um, and in the background of this, uh, Henry Bright is being chased by his um, dead wife's father, um, a evil man called the Colonel, um, and his two henchmen sons. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And Duncan and uh, what's the other one's name? Uh, what is the other one's name? Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Yeah, I mean, they're the worst parts of the book. They're let's the be honest. worst parts of the book. Um, it, it, the book is alternately both a parable and um, a story of one man trying to find a life for his child. The weird thing about the book um, is that in other reviews that uh, I've read of it, they refer to it as a comedy. And maybe I read it completely different, but I <laughs> there weren't a lot of chuckles in this uh, in this tale. So let me uh, let me start by asking you guys this. Um, first, let's just talk about the writing itself. Ryder, you, you you touched on it a little bit. Where do you think uh, he he 
succeeds and where do you think he fails for both of you as just as a writer with a first novel um i definitely think he succeeds i mean his vocabulary is wonderful and i like i said i didn't find it too um overdone um it, it was actually pretty straightforward and he has a he, he has a great way especially of, of describing landscapes i think it fails when it comes to people uh when he starts getting he uses a lot of animal metaphors with people he uses a lot of adverbs and descriptions of you know dialogue and the dialogue itself is kind of hokey and um and when it tries to be funny it it's just not um i think like the best example of that is that he has this this you can tell sometimes when he's made like an intellectual decision uh about how to make dialogue more sort of uh, interesting or make a choice about how it, it reflects a character. So he has like uh, the friend, the friend Bert, is it Bert? That's in, in yeah. World War One with Henry using mm-hmm. using the phrase Jerush over and over. That's the word that, you know, and it's like this sort of made up, aw geez, aw shucks saying. And he uses it every time the character speaks or the fact that the colonel never uses contractions mm-hmm. and some you know these decisions are just sort of forced upon and it's very like i made a choice about the character i'm gonna you know highlight a uh the difference between these characters and the way they speak and it's just sort of amateur writing so i think when it comes to describing landscapes or um or setting a scene he really has a great way of setting um of setting mood um i just want to read this passage it's the beginning of the second beginning of the second chapter of the book and he's we're we're in World War Two, World War One for the first time, and it, the chapter begins: mud and water and the stumps of trees. In every direction, that was all there was. Bodies fell, but the trees died, standing up. Nightly, they were crucified upon themselves by the zip and whine of machine guns. Their leaves corroded by gas. Their branches and trunks hacked for kindling. Some roots cut by entrenching tools. Others drowned by the ceaseless, steady drip dripping of blood and rain. It's something like that. It's beautiful. I mean, that's just a great, great yeah, description. Really and it's not overdone. It's not, you know, it's just perfect. Um, but then other times, like I said, with the dialogue, with the characters, you know, like everybody looks like a bird or, you know, hangs their head like a horse. Or It's just like, okay, let's just, just get to the, you know, we, you can cut some of that out. Um, and then a lot of times he returns to a lot of the same imagery. There's... There's a lot of burning books or shot up books or pages being used to wrap up food. When, you know, Henry bites his knuckles about 50 times in the book. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of trees. I can't believe how many trees get burned or blown up or are described as being burning. It's just an obsession with trees. Well, to be fair, though, there's a a section of the book where there's Uh, a conflagration that burns an entire forest. (laughs) Well, exactly. But that's what I mean. Well, actually, I mean, you know, and then there's also these, these, there's lots of burying of people and Mm -hmm. particularly dead women. And all of these things, I feel like, um, in the hands of another author would have been nice to be recurring. They wouldn't have felt kind of redundant, but the, the, it actually, to me, I feel like a lot of this book, and maybe this is a bias coming out of knowing that he's a songwriter and knowing that I've listened to his music and appreciated his, his lyrics, I feel like a lot of it comes out of uh, an image-based imagination where he, he is seized on a couple images, a burning tree, a, a woman being buried in a grave, a Bible, you know, and, it, and he sort of obsessively returns to those images and the book's not long enough to make those like a late motif it sort of just becomes limited imaginatively and it's sort yeah. of just i just was kind of bored by the you know the fourth time it's like oh, okay so you know and i think that that points to a problem with the book overall which is that its scope is sort of too narrow uh it's it's too intense and too narrow it's sort of like a 
a laser beam, and I think he wanted it to be more epic than it really I, was. I feel like uh, I I felt at points that the book was really cinematic. It's the same thing as what you're saying, Ryder, is that I it felt like it was supposed to evoke some grander feeling, but that without the use of actors or music interpreting the lines, it fell flat. Like he was going for archetypes, but it came across as stereotypes. Interesting. Like Rachel, yeah, that's a great point. Great point. Like Rachel is nothing, you know, and now mm-hmm. in a movie where it's so visual and you can tell he's a songwriter for sure. You know, that's, it would be fine. There, I can imagine beautiful shots, complicated relationship implied by image and their relationship to each other. But she has no dialogue. There's no real reason for us to like her. And and Ryder, uh, the colonel, I thought was even sillier than the henchman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Including the name. You know, it's like, here's the character with a title. He'll be scary and imposing. <laughs> and we won't, we won't give away too much, but there's there's a complicated yeah. relationship. The colonel is actually Henry Bright's mother's sister's husband. So it's Henry Bright's mother's brother-in-law, I guess is how we'd say that if we were... Um, or just Henry's speaking. uncle, right? Or Henry's uncle. Would be way of, <laughs> no, wait. No, you're right. You're right. right. No, that, no, that isn't right. It's not his uncle. Anyway, yeah. No, that would be Henry's uncle. Yeah. It would be? Okay. Yeah. By marriage. By marriage. Or And the henchman would actually be Henry's cousins. <laughs> <laughs> Our problem, ladies and gentlemen, is that we really don't understand Ancestry.com well enough. <laughs> well, you know, and I think what you're saying... Um, both of you about both the characters and about the images is that sometimes I think he's obsessive about letting you know exactly what you're supposed to know. Um, you know, sometimes a chair is just a chair. It's not a chair that is rough hewn, you know, and sometimes a tree is just a tree. It's not a tree that stands for something else with his characters. I always feel like the characters are standing for some other thing, which is what I think gives it the parable like quality and, and clearly, he's not writing this, I don't think at least, to be taken 100% as um, you know, a diary of World War I or what life is actually like in West Virginia in 1916 mm-hmm. you know, or whatever it is. Uh, because he, he's drawing things with blurry lines, it seems to me, if you, guys, if you, if you get what I mean. Like there, there are, there's the sense that, to me at least, that it's almost like a dream as it's unfolding, um, that Things are happening to Henry Bright, and they already feel like a memory as they're happening, um, if, that, if that makes any sense. Um, and I think that's evocative in a song, <laughs> and I think it's evocative in a poem. Mm-hmm. I think it's evocative on a page-by-page page, uh, sort of way. Yeah. So he, he writes very short chapters, two, three, four pages uh, long for his chapters. But when strung together and taken over the course of 200 pages, it, it reads nebulous, that Nothing seems concrete. Everything seems like an idea versus something specific. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, and I liked, I mean, I like the idea of Henry Bright as a person who is basically suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. But then, Mm -hmm. and even to have him visited by angels and the horse and everything. I think that's what people thought was funny, (laughs) but... I mean, the talking horse. Yeah, I mean, I took it seriously. <laughs> in the context of the book, it's a serious conceit. But then to place him in the middle of all these obviously evil characters seems to not serve what the what Henry Bright is really struggling with. 
you know. Well, I, I think it's uh, I think it's interesting that, that uh, other reviews have called it a comedy because it it would have been well served by being funnier, and it's just not funny. I felt like the comedy all just like the bum. I think the colonel was meant to be sort of a bumbling colonel, and his sons were supposed to be funny, and then there's like comments like. There's sort of he even the the magical realist conceit of the talking horse he tries to make funny by like having Henry say at one point you know oh that's the last time I you know get an angel to help me light a fire you <laughs> darn horse and like you know s- these hokey like moments these stilted sort of things and um and it just doesn't work I I just think the humor doesn't work and it needs that because um if it had the humor this could be. Uh, you know Don Quixote you know this could be the sort of literary version of Oh Brother Where Art Thou where it's like you know this southern landscape or I guess West Virginia where it's this you know character wandering aimlessly and being buffeted from like one crazy scene to another crazy scene but it it doesn't ever get that epic in scope it actually is too narrow um I I almost wish the book were longer in a way. If this were like a 400-page novel and Henry in this journey had, you know, followed this angel from the hills of West Virginia to California in the course of it, you know, and we had seen all these things along the way, um, I I would have felt better about it. But actually, it really just goes from the woods into town. And it's a small town, and the woods are burning, and that's there's really the only settings we get, and so we don't get much commentary on like you know it's not like Huck Finn where you get this sort of travelogue of of the the South mm-hmm. in a certain period, or and you get to see all these different classes and different types of people that it's nothing like that. It's like it's just well, I think I think generally characterization is is Josh Ritter's blind spot. You know, I think. Mm-hmm. And we, we, I think we said it a, a, a couple different ways is that he – I think he's a very evocative and interesting and ambitious writer. I mean he takes huge chances in this book, chances that I think um, someone who wasn't secure in their abilities um, wouldn't normally take. You know, to, to introduce mm-hmm. a talking horse, um, uh, you know, it, it's <laughs> it's not something that you're going to learn in Workshop 101. First thing you need to do in this story is get an anthropomorphic animal who may be God. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not you're not going to hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I admire his decision to take a big chance. I, I think what happens is he sacrifices beauty for substance. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's correctable. And I, I guess that leads to sort of the next kind of line of question, which is, Okay, this is a first novel. Are we are we looking at it as we would any first novel, or do we judge it differently because we know how accomplished he is in another field? If he were a painter instead of a songwriter, would we look at it as harshly, or would we just say, "Oh, you know, great first novel, great ambitious novel by a young writer"? The real question is, would he have even been able to get this published? Um, it, you know, as, as his first novel. Um, I don't, you know, I think the talking horse ambition is like I think that the the ambitiousness is is great, and that that's part of the novel works fine for me. Like that big choice and that sort of risk, all that is is fine. Me too. Um, to me, it's it's Henry. The character of Henry is just a hole at the center of this novel. He has no, he does not make an active decision. Everything is being done by the angel, and that. You know, and that would have been fine if, like I said, it was this sort of Don Quixote comedy where it's like, you know, this. If it was, if it was a, a picaresque novel, you know, it was about somebody. Or even you know, if the his passivity was his choice, you know that, you know, because I I believe that 
a passive character can be passive because that is how he or she has decided to go through life, and that you know that can be an interesting character. But just being passive is boring, especially because the motivation to me didn't seem grounded. I mean, the angels just saying, "Time for a new." Let's shake it up. New God. <laughs> the end. It seemed like a, a device. Right. But then you very also, really... you also very quick, and this is the, the, the real problem with, with his passivity is that you very quickly learn that he's suffering from P- PTSD and you kind of make the assumption, you know, it's an emotional story. Like there's an underbelly of real sort of seriousness that I think peeks through too much. And it hurt, you know, if it was just a comedic, funny you know, novel, it would be fine. But, but as it is, it's like, we're told constantly, we're reminded like, Oh no, 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 this is real stuff. You're supposed to feel emotional about this. It's, you know, and so I just tonally it's, it's off. Yeah. Because I mean, you brought up Huck Finn, Huck Finn at its core is, you know, going down through the South, looking at different views of slavery and then ultimately making a moral decision. But it doesn't seem to be really, taking a real look at the moral world that apparently needs a new Jesus. You know, it's like (laughs) these people are evil, but they're also good people too. You know, it's, it doesn't take a real point of view on why I'm really obsessed with this. Why the baby has to be this new Jesus. What's special about it? Why is this moment in history? It just seems like something to be serious. Uh, Let's talk just briefly about, um, about the world war one stuff. Um, Do we, do we need another novel about about World War One written by a uh, a thirty seven year old um, who only knows this stuff through his research? No, and I don't know if Joshua is thirty seven. I'm just assuming he is. He seems like he's thirty seven. I think that it being set in World War One was just another example of choosing an easy archetype, a shortcut for a kind of emotion. Hmm. Like. I mean, the narrative is similar in a way to As I Lay Dying or like Pan's Labyrinth where traumatic things and landscapes are happening. But it didn't seem to be related to World War One, other than saying like, man, that was a really traumatizing time. <laughs> I, if it had been set... Damn those crowds. If it, had been set, <laughs> if it had been set now, almost an identical narrative, but set now, I think I would have liked the book a lot more. Because it would have seemed to be speaking to our own historical moment or experience. You know what else? I would hate myself if I didn't mention this. I think another reason that people thought it was funny was the colonel scenes really reminded me of No Country for Old Men. Oh, the Anton Ligure scenes? Yes, yes. Like wandering around like, excuse me, can I put my hand in this sugar bowl (laughs) ominously? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like humorous ominous nameless villain or just a guy who makes really great chicken well that's bright's passage by josh ritter um it's uh released by the dial press it came out uh in the summer of 2011 my my final recommendation is uh if you're a fan of josh ritter's music uh i think it's worth a read It, it it's worth it to get inside even further into his mind into how he forms words and thoughts and opinions. And I think it's a, a nice corollary to his music. I think, personally, whatever he writes next is going to be the book that probably should have been published first, I think. Yeah. Um, this, was, this was the stepping stone. Yeah, step. I agree with that 100%. 100%. He's gonna, his next book is going to be amazing. And, uh, and you know, the, the nice thing about, uh, about second novels is that if they're really, really good, people just look at your first one and say, well, that wasn't that sweet. Wasn't that nice? He tried. 
And that's Bright's Passage by Josh Ritter uh, here on Literary Disco. Join us again next time when we examine probably a book not by a singer-songwriter. Meteoric warping wind Counterbalancing the sparks ever ascending The arrow time shoots forward though it moves through repetition The heartbeat of a lark or a lark in my heartbeat Hey, hey, hey It drives the driven snow now Upon his temples will I rest my weary hopes now The rain distills down steeples Fills the ears of lonely church mice With the heartbeat of a lark Or a lark in my heartbeat Hey, hey, hey.